what we're going to do is, this last conference will be a little shorter. I mean, it's just wise, because we've been through hours of theology, you know. So we should, we'll go a little briefer, maybe 20 minutes, 25 minutes, and then um, I'll, I'll obey Father Newman, like the rest of you do. And I'll go over here and sign books. If you, if you bring a book, I'll sign it. Charity. The theological virtue of charity, or love. Now, love is a difficult subject because there's different, that word means so many different things. But actually, the church has such a beautiful, clear teaching about charity. Love follows upon knowledge and presupposes it. Love follows upon knowledge and presupposes it. Contrary to the popular saying, love is not blind. Actually, love requires insight. Why? Because love follows from an apprehension of the good. It's when you grasp that something is good that you begin to, to love it. Knowledge of the good produces love. We love the goodness of another person because we first experience their qualities, their character, their strengths, their attractiveness. And we love them because we know them. We know them, we know their qualities, we begin to love them. It's true even on a very basic level of, sense, of the sense life in us as animals. If you feed the child chocolate, the child begins to love chocolate. The sense appetites have known chocolate, and then they begin to delight in it and to desire it, sense desires for chocolate. The spiritual life, begin to know God, begin to love God. You cannot love what you do not know, but having known the good of the other, you begin to love the other. So, love then creates two features in the soul for Aquinas. One is a delight in the goodness of the other or desire for the goodness of the other for his or her own sake. So if I say to you, do you love your brother? I mean, your blood brother. Yes, yes, I love my blood brother. Why do you love your blood brother? Well, we run a tire company together out on Highway 80 and uh, he lets me take 55% of the profits home and he does most of the work. And um, whenever it snows out, he keeps the store open, lets me stay home. And uh, generally, I just find he makes my life pleasant and happy. That's called utilitarian love. I love my brother for his usefulness to me. Or maybe even a love of concupiscence, of pleasure. Well, I love my brother because he's always bringing over the best barbecue and uh, also good wine. And uh, he helped build my house. southern examples, but it's not because you're southern. It's because I'm from southern. So I'm, you're not from the south. I'm from southeast Georgia. I'm from the south. But anyway, so, but you could also say this, I love my brother 
because I will his good. I want him to flourish. What's your brother do? Well, he's studying to be an anesthesiologist, and it's really hard work, and sometimes he gets depressed, and he feels like he can't go forward, and I give him pep talks about hope and not being in despair, and I take him out to a restaurant, and I try to, you know, we go to mass together, and I try to pop him up and give him pep talks. Yeah, because I love him, and I want him to survive and flourish. I want him to withstand the trial and flourish and thrive. And I love who he's become. He's a great person. So love is the desire for the good of the other, their own flourishing. And love is the desire for union with them. It's both. So it's the desire to, it's, desi- it's, a, it's, a, it's a desire, it's a love of their qualities and a care for their own human good and flourishing. And it's a desire to be with and grow with them. So in love and friendship, true human love and friendship, you want the good of the other and you delight in the company of the other. This is just natural human love that's according to virtue, according to reason. This, I'm just, this is Aristotle. Aquinas repeats it. So an authentic friendship that's not just a friendship of utility. What do you and your brother do? Oh, well, we rob banks together. He's really good at getting through the bank wall. I'm really good with the safe. We're both good at evading the police. We have a friendship of utility. Or, you know... Friendships of concupiscence. We go bowling together. We drink a six-pack. We see how many pins we can knock down. We watch the game together. We have a good life. That's concupiscence. It's okay. It's not bad, but it's not... Well, it could become bad, but it's not elevated. Love of friendships when you want the good of the other. And you delight in being with the other because of their qualities. And then the nobility of a friendship depends on what you have in common. What do you have in common with your best friend? Well, we've raised four children together. That took a lot of work. Okay, that's a noble friendship, a marital friendship. Or, well, we, we study, one of my close friends and I study philosophy together. That's a noble friendship, to seek the truth in friendship with the other. We have a, I'm very good friends with my partner in psychiatry. We take care of people who are you know, struggling, and we have a great professional friendship. It's not just about the money, it's about a common mission to help people. Okay. We, we, we have friendships with people uh, around noble endeavors. And of course, the best friendship you and I can have with others is in the faith. It's the friendship we grow, that we have in around Christ. There's no higher common good that's better than bowling, anesthesia, anesthesiology, or psychiatry. Or, Christ is highest. Christ is higher than the philosophy. He's the highest. Now, charity is like this, but now we're not talking about a common life with our friends, a noble friendship of philosophers, friendship of scientists, friendship of medical colleagues. Now we're talking about friendship with God. Friendship with God. That's what charity is primarily. It's not, when we hear charity, we're trained to think, first of all, we might think that's giving to the Salvation Army, you know, or helping the, you know, the causes it's okay. It's, we need to do that. We have an obligation to do that. But that's actually, actually it's kind of more of a natural obligation of being a benefactor in the world of justice, not hoarding too much money, giving some money away, helping the poor, and that kind of thing. Charity, then we might think of it for a little bit more spiritual, we might think of charity as like loving other people for the sake of Christ. We usually experience that as like a limit. Actually, my brother and I have been fighting a lot. 
since the day we were like six. And I have struggled to love him for the sake of Christ and go to confession about it all. And so and that's where I really feel like that's not just natural love, it's charity. I will is good for the sake of Christ. Because all the wounds I may hurt, my heart from him. I have to love him for the sake of Christ. Okay. That's true. That's a supernatural love. But primarily, actually Aquinas says that's less of a grace of charity than we love him in Christ with the human good. So if you love him in Christ and all it's more harmonious and deeper, it's more perfect. But um, the highest of element of charity is just friendship with God, not other people. God. Christ. Personal relationship with Christ. Personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. Personal relationship with the Father. That's charity. To love God, to worry about what God wants, to worry about what's good for God. The saints become people who don't worry about anything really except what God needs. What are God's needs? Not in Himself. God doesn't need anything in Himself. God's perfect and blissful and infinite and good and wise. But God wants things for His church and His world. And the saints become people animated by the concerns of God. So they worry about what they can do for Christ. Because they love him. They want Jesus is good. They want the flourishing of Jesus' church. They want the flourishing of Christ's human race of the people for whom Christ has died. They become servants and slaves of Christ, friends of Christ, beloved companions of Christ and his blessed society. They dwell with him, they seek union with him. So Aquinas goes here, he says in I, I've given you just this little text from the Summa Theologiae. And the question, this is the second part of the second part of the Summa Theologiae. Question 23, Article 1. And the question is, what is charity? What is charity? And he's in the, in the, when he cites the, the authority, on the contrary, he quotes John 15, 15. I will not now call you servants, but my friends. Now this was said to them by reason of nothing else than charity. Therefore, charity is friendship. It's awesome. It's one of those, you know, Aquinas says these lightning bolt definitions. Charity is friendship. What is charity? Friendship with God. Now, you may say, I feel daunted by that, Father. I don't know if I'm friends with God. I commit sins. Faith is obscure for me. I'm no great mystic. I'm just struggling through. You're perfectly qualified for friendship with God in this case. Because friendship with God is based on being baptized, having a faith that is often obscure, and being a sinner. You can't be friends with Christ if you're not a sinner. The only people, people who think they're not sinners cannot be friends with Christ. It's very, very straightforward. You want to be friends with Christ, you have to be able to accept that you're frail, you have problems, and he died for your sins, and he wants to forgive you and heal you and elevate you by his grace. So, only sinners are allowed. If you have no sins, you're in the wrong place. This is a Catholic church. Please leave. You can go out and find some other church. You can join it, and then actually it won't be without sinners, but you don't have to believe that. Fine. We are eminently qualified to be here because we're all sinners. So, 
Friendship with God is made possible by the gift of faith that God has given us, not by any merits of our own, but by his free gift and by the fact that we're sinners so we can receive. We're poor. We can receive from God the grace of forgiveness and the grace of charity. And we can begin to love God for his own sake in the obscurity of faith. Poor, struggling, suffering people that we are who are not very good in our spiritual life, who fall asleep in front of the Blessed Sacrament or who don't say our prayers very well. But if you have the desire, you can grow. The key to growing in friendship with God is the desire. The desire to grow closer to God. That's the only real qualification you need. And if you don't have that, you can pray for it and God will probably give it to you. And that's probably why you haven't prayed for it. Because you don't want to have to give it. You don't want to receive it. Because then if you receive it, you have to grow and then you have to kind of give your life to it. You know, God is, God the Holy Spirit takes your little digit of your pinky and he takes the next digit, he takes the next digit. He takes your hand, your arm. So if you start praying to him to grow in desire, he will take you up on it and you will have to give everything. But God likes you to give everything. And when you give everything, you feel better. So just give everything. Anyway, charity is this this beginning of friendship with God in us, which invites us into intimacy with God in the darkness of faith, independence upon Christ. Now he goes on to say there's three features of living with another person in friendship. Um, it's that you know the other person, that you, that you know the other person loves you and you love the other person. That you have some kind of common life with the other person. And that you have some activities you share in common life with the other person. So like, take the philosopher. Into the philosophy friendship, that's the Aristotle's, Aristotle's example. The philosophers spend time together. The philosophers know that they enjoy each other's company in studying philosophy, and what do they do together in studying philosophy? Okay. Transposed to God. What are we doing with God? We're living our life with God. We know God loves us. We know we can love God by grace. We're spending time with God in common life, and we have activities in common wherein we grow in the love of God. Well, what, what, what am I talking about concretely, most of all? Well, everything we do as Christians, but especially the Eucharist, especially the liturgy, where we are in the presence of God. And we grow in love with God, and God's love for us is made manifest. Now, there's something analogous to this, but higher in a way. Well, Kind of complicated, it's higher, because the universe is the way everything. But this is especially what was the charity of the presence of God, the love of God made possible in the Holy Family. So think about what it was like for the Virgin Mary in Advent to have the Lord present in utero, first conceived, then growing, you know, a child with a fetus in her baby in the womb. She also but St. Augustine says she conceived the word in her mind before she conceived the word in her womb. Meaning, when an angel announces the faith to her, she knows the presence of the eternal word, the Son, and then she experiences the coming by the power of the Spirit, pregnant with the child Jesus, with the embryonic conceptus of the word made flesh. Which means the Virgin Mary experiences in her own maternal life as a mother something like what you and I experience of Christ's presence in the tabernacle. The discreet presence of Christ in the tabernacle is something we discern over time. We can become aware of the, the, the mystical and real presence of God in the sanctuary in the tabernacle. The Virgin Mary has this 
presence in the Lord of the Lord. You see Elizabeth recognize it in Luke's narrative. She goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and Elizabeth says, Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? The image Luke is purposely using is one like a very like a tabernacle. He uses in Greek the word overshadowed for the Holy Spirit. That is the same word used in Exodus and in the early books of the Bible for the cloud that descends and overshadows the tabernacle of Israel. So just as the law is present in the ancient tabernacle and the, whole, the glory of God overshadows the tabernacle of Israel, so the Holy Spirit overshadows the Virgin Mary as a new tabernacle in which the Lord dwells. And when she goes out to meet Elizabeth, she brings the presence of the Lord with her. And, he's, and Elizabeth is made aware of the presence. So Mary and Joseph live a life of charity, a common life. What do they have in common? Philosophy? Not so much. Their love of God, yes. But also the presence of God in the flesh, the Christ God. In the womb of Mary on Christmas night, they have the presence of God among them, among us. Emmanuel, God dwelling with us. They live a common life with God. They are friends of God even through the mystery of incarnation. So the Holy Family is in a way more like a monastery than it is a domestic family, or at least it's also a model of a monastery. In that, it's a life of contemplation presence of God among us. Just like a monastery or a priory, literally the heart and soul of the monastery is the chapel and especially the tabernacle, the presence of Christ. So, in the Holy Family, it's a contemplative friendship built up around the presence of Christ. Now, I use this word, presence. Presence is very related to love. How do you know someone is loves love? Well, that's not so always so easy to tell. But it's something hardly exactly expressed has to do with the person's way of being present to you. Presence is, of course, a physical presence, typically. Somebody can be present to us by telephone in a way, calling us if we're sick, make sure we're okay. But presence is especially physical presence, but through spiritual choice. I can be physically present to you, and I can be looking at my computer, my phone, and I'm not being present to you. But if I'm actually being present to you, it's through a choice. And people, when they're close friends with each other, are very present to each other in conversation. And that stems from love. So love effectuates a sense of mutual presence. I am present to you, and you are present to me in friendship. Because I care about you, I like being in your presence, I like talking to you about things, I like doing things with you. You also with me, and we have a shared life together. But God has become present to us. God has made his presence known to us in a perpetual way so that we can dwell with God. Now, it's not a God who's manipulatable. We can't just take God by the hand and take him wherever he was for a time in such a state. We could take him by hand, and we took his hands, and we put them on board, and we put hands But now he's present in a way that's in the faith, real. The flesh of Christ is present to us already just in the faith, it's a strange way in which the faith allows you to be present to Christ. 
but especially in the Eucharist. And that creates a society of love. The Eucharist's principal grace, the principal fruit of the sacrament of the Eucharist is charity. We grow in charity by the reception of the Eucharist. Keeps us stable in the love of God. Doesn't always make it extraordinary to be Catholic. Sometimes it feels unexceptional. Sometimes it feels more like a daily bread than a banquet. But it sustains us for the journey. In faith. It sustains us in our faith through love. It allows us to adhere to Christ and grow closer to Christ in His presence. Thomas Aquinas asks, how is God present to the world? How is God present to the world? He says there are three ways. The first way is as creator. God is present by his omnipotence. Omnipresence. Because he's causing us to exist. Right now, you and I have spiritual souls that were created directly immediately by God, not by our parents. And God is present to our spiritual soul as the immediate cause of being. He's present also to the whole physical world, sustaining the physical world in being. He's causing everything to exist now. So he's intimately present to all things. Otherwise, they wouldn't exist. Causes them to be. Augustine says, God is more present, is more interior to us than we are to ourselves. God is the most interior reality because he's causing everything to exist. He's not the world. God is not the world. God is causing the world to exist. Omnipresence. Now, he's present also in the guys who are the bank robbers, the people committing genocide, the people doing brave evil, sustaining them in being as their creator, respecting their freedom, tolerating evil, not causing it, tolerating it, allowing it, permitting it, eventually punishing it. But he's present to all things as creator. That's the first presence. The second presence, he says, he's present to angels and men spiritual creatures by grace. When he makes them adopted sons and daughters of God by grace. So he's present in our souls by grace. And that's the presence of the Holy Trinity in each of us. Because we have faith, hope, and charity, we can know God as a friend. And God can dwell in our hearts and minds by grace. That's what we need to see cultivate. That sense of the inner presence of God in our lives. And that's what we do when we pray. Especially when we do our mental prayer. We spend 20 minutes a day in mental prayer, reading scriptures for half an hour. We go to Mass early or stay late and pray quietly in the presence of the Lord's Sacrament. We can grow in that sense of the presence of Christ in our souls, of the Father in our souls, of the Spirit in our souls, the Holy Trinity giving us a sense of God's presence in us by grace. The third kind of presence, he says, is the unique presence of God by incarnation, because the second person of the Trinity has become human. And that's the presence of Christ as man, of God made man. And that's preserved mysteriously in the tabernacle of the Eucharist and the Eucharist. We have the glorified body and blood of Christ present under the appearances of red wine because of transubstantiation. Now that third presence nourishes the second presence. In being with Christ, we nourish the presence of Christ in us by grace. We don't become Christ, but we become closer to Christ in the word of grace. And in this, Joseph and Mary are models to us in their life of devotion, love of God, and worship in the Holy Family. 
contemplation and worship from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the presence of Christ, Christ child. So, just to finish, we've been talking about faith, hope, and charity. The Virgin Mary and St. Joseph teach us about these virtues, about how to live Christian lives. And Advent is a time of a kind of quiet and peaceful preparation. You might say, if you were to say it in a kind of poetic way, in a true way, that Advent is the season of Marian interiority, of following the Virgin Mary in her interior life as she prepares for the birth of the Christ child, of growing in faithful and charity with Mary in her faith and in her hope and her charity, with Joseph in his faith and his hope and his charity, in a quiet, hidden presence of Christ in our world in the womb of Mary, eventually to be born on Christmas night. And we as a church, in a strange way, in God's playfulness, we, we mirror this. God is present now in the church, in the world, but almost as if hidden, as if in the womb of Mary, to eventually be made manifest. And we as a church welcome this, like Mary welcoming Christ into the world in a hidden and silent love. And that is a grace given to us in our imperfection, in the obscurity and poverty of our faith. That is a history given to us to live as a church this Advent and every Advent as we prepare for Christ's birth, manifestation, and epiphany.